Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees or anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim, one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales. So today we've got another clinical examination podcast for you. Sophie Constantinou, the clinical exam lead here in Wales, walks us through the cranial nerve exam and the eye exam. Now I know that currently the exams have all been cancelled by the RCPCH given the whole COVID crisis, but if you're in the mood to revise something new or you just want to go over something that isn't COVID for a while, then give this a listen, even if it's a case of just getting ready for exams that aren't happening for a little while. So take it away Sophie. Hello everyone, I'm Sophie and welcome to this revision podcast for the MRCPCH clinical exam. Episode 4 is on the cranial nerve and eye examination. Each episode we focus on one potential station in the clinical exam and this week it's the cranial nerve and eye exam. We will have another podcast on the examination of the central and peripheral nervous system so make sure you check back with us in a few weeks for that. As always, we are going to start with our top tips. After that, we will go over the structure of the cranial nerve exam. Then we are going to revise some key areas of the examination, which this week are ptosis, facial nerve palsy, and a quick note on the red reflex. You can test your knowledge with our pub quiz episode on the neuro exam and download a PDF of the key points from this episode on the website. So what are our top tips for the cranial nerve and eye examination? Make sure you get a good look of the patient when they're walking into the room or walking around the room. When I did my neurological examination in the exam, I pretty much got the diagnosis before actually examining the patient. Make sure you feel for a shunt. Take a look at the child's shoes. They can often reveal abnormalities with the child's gait and it looks pretty slick. For the cranial nerve examination, practice, 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 so you get really slick. Right, so let's go over the structure of the cranial nerve and eye exam. We're going to begin from a general inspection But do remember that in the exam, they may only ask you to focus on one or two aspects of the examination. So just make sure you're doing what's asked of you. And if you're not sure, check with them. To start, it's wiper. Wash your hands, introduce yourself, ask for permission from the patient and the parent, expose the patient, which for the cranial nerve exam should be from the shoulders up, maintaining patient dignity. The patient should be sitting up on a chair in front of you if they're able to do so. We deviate here from the traditional inspection, palpation, percussion and auscultation, but I would suggest that you do a brief general inspection at the start of the cranial nerve exam. First, have a look around the room. Are there any glasses lying on the table or NG feeds? Or are there books or a Snellen chart in the room for a visual acuity check? Is there a walking stick or wheelchair in the room? Next, have a good look at your patient. Notice their posture. 
do they have symmetrical muscle bulk or do they have a hemiplegic or diplegic posture? Are there any signs of dysmorphism? Are they wearing built-up shoes? Do they have a feeding tube or central line present for parenteral nutrition? Comment on their nutritional status. Are they small for their age or are they well-grown? Then move on to systematically examining each of the cranial nerves in turn. In general, have a little brief inspection prior to formally testing the nerve function. Cranial nerve 1, the olfactory nerve. Simply ask the patient or parent if they have any trouble with their sense of smell. Cranial nerve 2, the optic nerve. Ask the patient to focus on a distant target and notice the position of the eyes. Is there any obvious strabismus or squint? Is there proptosis or ptosis? Look more closely at the eye for coloboma, corneal clouding, microphthalmia, or any lid lesions. If the patient is wearing glasses, take them off and have a look. You can work out from glasses if the patient is long or short-sighted by seeing whether the glasses magnify or minify an image, for example, a corner. This is tricky to explain on a podcast, so I have a picture of how to do this on the PDF which you can download from our website. If the image is smaller, the patient is short-sighted, and if the image is larger, then the patient is long-sighted. So small, short-sighted, large, long-sighted. Then test the function of the optic nerve. I use the mnemonic AFROC, which stands for A, acuity, F, fields, R, reflexes, O, optic disc, and C, colour vision. So we'll start with acuity. Test the patient's acuity with their glasses on. Don't bother taking their glasses off and test their each eye separately. If they can read a Snellen chart, get them to do that. But if they're too young, you can use K's matched pictures for children who can point or Cardiff cards for children who are non-verbal. Fields. Sit one metre away from the patient and get to their height. Ask them to cover one eye and you cover the same eye. Test counting fingers in the four quadrants. Only use one, two or five fingers and make sure you flash the fingers up quickly when you show them. Then test the other eye. All you are trying to do is pick up quadrantopia or hemianopia and not the more subtle field defects. Reflexes. Test the patient's direct and consensual light reflexes and also test accommodation and check for an RAPD. Optic disc. I say at this point that I would perform ophthalmoscopy at the end of the examination because it can be uncomfortable for some and you need to dim the lights. So I tend to leave this to the end anyway. And it's important to check the optic disc for pallor or papilledema. Finally, you would check colour vision with Ishihara plates. Moving on to cranial nerves 3, 4 and 6, that is oculomotor, trochlear and abducens nerves. These are the nerves that are responsible for eye movements. So with a kid, you need to make sure their head is in the midline and ask them to follow a toy 
or your finger, but try to make it interesting for them in a cross pattern. I want you to have a look at the image that I've put on the PDF to see what I'm doing because many of you will have learnt the H pattern in medical school. Make sure you check your elevators first, so the muscles that make the eyes go up, and then check your depressors. And when you're checking your depressors, gently hold the patient's upper eyelids open so that you can see the movements of the globe more clearly. Make sure you revise which muscles and nerves make each eye movement and practice saying them out loud when you're checking the eye movements on a patient. Remember, superior oblique is innervated by the trochlear nerve and the lateral rectus is innervated by the abducens. So that's SO4, LR6. The third nerve, the oculomotor nerve, does everything else. Check for nystagmus by holding the patient's gaze laterally on both sides. Cranial nerve five, the trigeminal nerve. Inspect for temporalis or masseter wasting, then check the sensory components using a piece of cotton wool in the V1, V2 and V3 distribution. Have a quick YouTube video search for corneal reflex and jaw jerk to remind yourself of how to do this and what it looks like. Cranial nerve seven, the facial nerve. I think probably this is everyone's favorite nerve to check in peds. So remember to do a general inspection at the beginning for asymmetry of the face. Ask the patients to raise their eyebrows up, screw their eyes tight shut, puff out their cheeks and open their mouth. I do this against resistance. Look for asymmetry. The sensory component of cranial nerve seven is pretty untestable. It's the sensory distribution to the anterior two thirds of the tongue, so taste. But you could check if they have had any changes in their taste if you see any abnormalities in the facial nerve. Cranial nerve eight, the auricular nerve. Take this opportunity to prompt yourself to look at the ear for any external ear abnormalities. Check whether the patient's wearing any hearing aids, if they have any scars from cochlear implants, and palpate posteriorly for a VP shunt. Grossly test the patients can hear by whispering a word or a number into each ear whilst occluding the other. You can also do Rini's and Weber's tests, and I have a picture of how I remember what happens in these tests on the PDF on the website too. Cranial nerve number nine, glossopharyngeal, responsible for the gag reflex and the taste to the posterior one third of the tongue. Inadvertently, you test this all the time during your throat examinations, and I would suggest it's best avoided during the actual exam, but just mention to the examiner you know how to do it and what the motor and sensory components of the nerve are. Cranial nerve 10, vagus nerve. Ask the child to say a short sentence and listen to see whether they have any hoarseness to their voice. Ask them to open their mouth and say ah, and look for movements of the soft palate. I revised this by checking out videos on YouTube of unilateral vagus nerve palsy and see the palsy of the movement of the soft palate. It's quite striking once you've seen it and you should remember how it looks in future. So we're rounding up now, we're on cranial nerve number 11. The accessory nerve. Test this by force rotation of the head against resistance and check for contralateral sternocleidomastoid weakness. Cranial nerve 12, the hypoglossal nerve. Ask the patient to stick their tongue out and inspect first for wasting and fasciculations. 
then ask them to wiggle it from side to side. At the end of the examination, you can then go on to looking at the patient's fundi using an ophthalmoscope. The examiner may stop you, but you should make every intention of doing this as it really is a key part of the eye and cranial nerve exam. So to finish, thank the patient, wash your hands, take your stethoscope off, even though you haven't used it, and turn to face the examiner and say, to complete my examination, I would like to plot the height and weight on an appropriate chart and perform a full upper and lower limb neurological examination. Then present your findings to the examiner. This leaves you with three minutes with the examiner to ask you questions. That completes the structure of the cranial nerve and eye exam. Next up, it's our focus on sections. Focus on red reflex. So this is just a note to mention that the red reflex is not really part of testing the cranial nerves, but if you are asked to do an eye exam rather than a cranial nerve exam, it's important that you include this, and I'm sure you're all really good at checking the red reflex from working on postnatal wards anyway and doing hundreds of baby checks. Another reflex that you might want to consider is the corneal light reflex. This is a white reflection of light from the cornea, and basically it can help you decide whether there's any ocular misalignment, so whether there's a squint or not. There are loads of really good YouTube videos which show you what happens to the corneal light reflex in various squints, and I would suggest that you check these out. Focus on ptosis. Ptosis, or a drooping upper lid, may be the only finding in an eye examination, so it's good to be able to work out the causes. I divide the causes into whether the ptosis is unilateral or bilateral, but most are unilateral, and then I remember some syndromic causes as well. As a caveat, lots of ptosis is actually idiopathic, but this should be one of the things that you mention as part of your differential diagnosis. Let's briefly go through these categories. So unilateral ptosis can either be as part of one, Horner's syndrome, or two, a third nerve palsy. So let's revise Horner's syndrome. Horner's syndrome is an interruption to the sympathetic nervous system, which gives you that classic triad of ptosis, meiosis, and anhydrosis, meiosis being a small pupil. It can also give you enophthalmia. It's caused by interruption to the sympathetic nervous system, for example, secondary to a tumour or a stroke or any other injury. A congenital Horner's syndrome gives you the same triad, so ptosis, meiosis, anhydrosis, but you may also find heterochromia iridis. A common cause of congenital Horner's syndrome is brachial plexus injury at birth. Another important cause of unilateral ptosis is as part of a third nerve palsy, where the eye is in that down and out position. The patient may complain of double vision on formal testing or may come to you with the symptom of double vision. Causes again can be idiopathic, but you need to make sure that there's no space occupying lesion or tumour. Ask and investigate for trauma and make sure you aren't missing cavernous sinus thrombosis as well. Bilateral ptosis, the only cause I can really think of is myasthenia gravis, although they often also are unilateral. Patients again complain of diplopia and you may see fatigability of eye movements on formal testing. 
You tend to do this by holding the patient's gaze upwards and see if their ptosis gets worse. Just note that the test for autoantibodies against the acetylcholine receptor actually only picks up about half the patients. You can test for myasthenia clinically using the ICE test. In case you're asked about this, you need to first measure the distance between the upper and lower lids, which is called the palpable aperture. Then get an ice pack or probably a glove full of ice and hold it on the patient's upper lid for two minutes. After this, re-measure the palpable aperture. If the ptosis improves by two millimetres, the test is considered positive and actually has a higher than 90% sensitivity and specificity for myasthenia. This is because I stops acetylcholinesterase breakdown of acetylcholine at the neuromuscular junction, allowing it to collect up in the junction and actually increase muscle contraction. So they're the causes of unilateral and possibly bilateral ptosis. And I'm just going to mention a few syndromic causes as well. So these can be Noonan's syndrome, Smith-Lemney-Opitz and Rubinstein-Taibbi syndromes. Focus on facial nerve palsy. If you cast your mind back to medical school, whenever anyone talked about facial nerve palsy, they were talking about upper and lower motor neuron lesions. And I always remember being really confused by this in medical school. I then just committed this one sentence to memory, which is upper motor neuron lesions are forehead sparing. And once I remembered that, the rest sort of came naturally. So causes of an upper motor neuron lesion are pretty simply remembered as anything that affects the brain itself. So cerebral palsy, tumours, bleeds, etc. Causes of lower motor neuron lesions are more varied. And the most likely case you might get in the exam or that you probably have seen in real life is a Bell's palsy. So Bell's palsies are usually unilateral but can be bilateral. Most are idiopathic but you need to make sure that there aren't any important underlying causes over bells. So you need to check if there's hypertension, whether or not there's any history of Lyme disease or contact um, in tick-borne areas, especially if it's bilateral. Check a chickenpox history, as varicella can cause this, and examine for signs of leukaemia as well. Other causes of lower motor neuron facial palsy lesions include Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, although this is probably unlikely as you're not going to have an infectious herpes zoster patient in the exam, chronic otitis media, again tumours, viral infections such as mumps and EBV and trauma of any kind. So that completes the focus on sections. Okay, so that's it for today. My thanks to Dragon Bites for hosting this podcast. Check out the London School of Paediatrics MRCPCH videos and refresh your knowledge on eye movements and palsies by watching patient videos on YouTube. Please don't forget to check out our other podcasts. Remember, you can download the companion worksheet from the website for the key tips from this episode and you will be able to test your knowledge with our NeuroPub quiz. Thanks all for listening and see you next time for more MRCPCH revision. And thank you, Sophie, for a fantastic examination podcast again. As she said, you can get hold of the PDF for this podcast on the uh, website. That's www.dragonbitespodcast.com.
You can also find out previous episodes there and you can make suggestions for future episodes. Like I mentioned at the end of our last podcast, COVID's going to be affecting us too, but currently we've still got a few podcasts in the bank and we'll keep them coming as often as we can. It might just be a little less regular than it used to be. However, it's not like the commute to work has gotten any shorter, so we're going to keep these podcasts coming as often as we can. Anyway, thank you for listening to Dragon Bites.